Weird policy to have. What's up, Thurman? How goes it, y'all? Dude, I'm uh, I'm good, man. How about you? Um, do, doing all right, I guess. Uh, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you guys. Yeah, been been a little while, so. Yeah, get the gang back together. Well, uh, well, hey, let's get the ball rolling. You guys ready to go? Do you want to line out any uh, general, you guys have any ideas or anything you want to feel before we get rolling? I just want to say Thurman spent his whole life <laughs> to talk about JFK. So <laughs> this is the Thurman show. Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know about that. I mean... <laughs> I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about that. I mean, if, if you grew up in the storing household, this goes for Julie too, you probably know more about the Kennedy assassination than 99.8% of the population. That's just how it goes. Thanks, oh. Dad. Yeah. Well, hey, yeah. by, by virtue of, of knowing Thurman, I definitely, I was telling him like a week ago, I was like, dude, I'm, I'm deep down in the rabbit hole. I'm listening to the Garrison book. I'm watching old Oliver Stone interviews. Um, I'm reading interviews that people have done with him in the past, like digging into his films overall and like his time in Vietnam. It, and then watch JFK twice in one week and then The Irishman and then The X-Files. I mean, yeah. Right. Good times. And uh, I think it's uh, pretty fitting that this podcast is being done on November 22nd, the 57th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination in Dallas. Yeah. So pretty fitting. Yeah, for sure. What a, yeah, what a good idea uh, it was to do this on this day and, and get everything brought together. So, right. Fantastic. All right. Well, hey, let's, let's get started. So, <clears throat> feel free to uh, interject with, with all your expertise, Thurman, but we talked about um, doing sort of, I really like looking at history through film. We've done several podcasts. All three of us have done several podcasts like that together. And it was after, right, like the the week before you you um, had Luna, right? And we right. were like, hey, I'd watched The Irishman, and and you had just been talking about JFK on the on that podcast we did about your thesis. And I was like, oh man, this this film over here, The Irishman, is answering all the questions. You know, Oliver Stone even says that he's like, yeah, I've, I tried to answer all the questions in JFK, the film. But it's just interesting how um, how these films can influence history. And I think how JFK really uh, has influenced a lot of people that have seen its view on this topic, um, you know. But uh, that's kind of the scope. And then I think we might uh, do some peripheral mentions of the X-Files. It's even made its way over into there. Have, have you seen that episode, Julie? Oh, of course. We I mean, we watched it when it aired. Like we Season four, episode seven, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously, in the storing household, like I think I was aware of the JFK assassination and the conspiracy surrounding it at age seven. Like our dad was really into it enough that he thought his kids should know and also like study like we did a little, like, like we used to watch Unsolved Mysteries all the time too, but we did a, me and Thurman did a presentation to our parents 
in order to disprove or prove that there was a conspiracy. And this is like, I don't know, I was probably about maybe eight or nine. Like we were in Arkansas at this point, but yeah, we're strange kids. <laughs> I wish I was doing JFK conspiracy assignments with my parents. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Thurman's a much better speaker than me, but, you know, though, I guess that was the preview of his thesis when he was younger. Um, But yeah, what's interesting to me thinking about it is how much of like media with television and film is mainly about the conspiracy. And really the only thing I could think of that was a straightforward interpretation that Oswald did it is Stephen King's 112263, which was adapted into a miniseries on Hulu. That's that's mm. the only every everything else, it's like all about the conspiracy. And only Stephen King seems <laughs> seems to be the one to present the straightforward. It was only Oswald. He acted alone. He was a crazy person. Huh. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read that. I'll have to I'll have to look into it. That's uh yeah, I'm sure that's interesting. You said it was a Hulu series as well. How old is that? How long has that been out? Uh, I think it came out, I, my guess is like, I don't know, four or five years ago. Okay. And, um, James Franco in it. But essentially, it's about a guy who time travels. I know what you're talking about. I know. Yeah. Yes, I remember that. And it's like the idea that the Kennedy assassination is the one event in American history that you can go back to where everything just fell apart and went wrong. Um, and he goes back to try to stop the assassination. Right. I think you make a really good point, Julie, about how the conspiracy narrative is the common narrative that you see all throughout any form of media that has to do with anything involving the, uh, the Kennedy assassination or even the Kennedys in general. I mean, there are some notable examples prior to 11-22-63. Uh, in 1964, there was a documentary film that was released that was called Four Days in November that came out, and it tells sort of from the Warren Commission perspective of it, it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary in 1965. Um, other than that, uh, the only, you know, it's hard to try to think of other examples of, oh, there was a film called Parkland that came out maybe about 2013, and that's about it. Other than that, everything else is centric on the conspiracy. And you also make the point too, as with 11-22-63, the Kennedy assassination is often viewed as this point in history where post-war American prosperity, values and all that collapsed after this. Everything fell apart. It's all part of this Camelot mythos that you see. Um, throughout and but that that this singular point is where everything went downhill in America people lost trust in the government they had the Vietnam War all kinds of unrest people yeah people just lost any faith in their institution their institutions in their government and all that but I mean we, we know as historians that that's not true <laughs> that things had been bad for a while, even before that point. But this this is like this nostalgic beacon that everybody is drawn to. And I mean, that's present in the films that we're even gonna be talking about today. JFK especially really haunts in on that. But 
Yeah, well, and it's wild how much, I, I mean, I guess just like based off, I've been getting just really interested in Oliver Stone, the person, and and what I could find about him. I mean, I haven't <clears throat> had a conversation with him, but I've checked out some of his interviews and, and how much um, his sort of view on all of this was shaped by his involvement in Vietnam. I mean, he was in Vietnam in right. the Ashaw Valley in 68, you know, and him coming back to the States. And I, I mean, I just thought that was very, particularly interesting to, to see that he was motivated to tell that, to tell uh, the JFK story, do platoon and some other things uh, that would be, you know, deemed controversial. He was talking about being um, censored by the Pentagon with his work on platoon. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's some things there that with his, is within his direction style we could probably get into today of, like, creating composite characters, making up characters. It is a sort of a, just the freedom of his directing, like, just being creative. But, he, you know, he does it to answer these questions. Uh, uh, in a, I think it's fascinating, but that's something I've seen in, like, he's repeated as a director. He was talking about in platoon combining multiple units that he fought in to create the one unit platoon. I thought that was interesting, but I see some crossover there with what he was saying he did with coming up with characters in um, JFK. Right. Well, Oliver Stone I, is quoted as saying when he made the JFK movie, what he wanted to do was create a counter myth to the Warren Commission report, to the, the whole Oswald did it, only three shots fired thing, but that he wanted to create a counter myth. And I think one of the biggest questions, and it's, it's an ethical question here, is was Stone justified in sort of bending the truth, in sort of making these, uh, say, composite characters, like you say, in order to in sort of like Stone's idea, have the bigger truth uh, revealed. I mean, do you get what I'm getting at here? What I'm saying is that, is, was it necessary for him to embellish or even make things up in order to, in his words, have his, his vision of what this great conspiracy was revealed to the American people? It's an ethical question, is what it is. Yeah, I was going to say, when you're dealing with actual history, like, how much of a license can you take, and at what point is it harmful? Like we talked about with the Lost Cause narrative in films, basically shaping people's ideas of the Civil War and giving them, you know, a <laughs> lies, essentially. Um and whereas, you know, JFK is obviously a lot murkier because there are so many unanswered questions. But, you know, at the same time, it's like people should realize they are watching a movie, but in many cases people don't. And then take this at face value of like, well, this film, you know, I learned this from this movie, but in many times in JFK, like you're saying, it's composite characters or they even leave out info that would go against what um, Oliver Stone was trying to get at. I mean, I think overall he had like the overarching themes of having distrust in your in the government and it arising from this singular event is really strong, but 
Yeah, at the same time, now you you got people who believe all this stuff just because they saw it in a film. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think another another question is 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 in uh, Brian, since you've looked into Oliver Stone's background, is is he being genuine? Is he is he intentionally being disingenuous, or is is his his appeal to put this stuff out there is it genuine? Does does he really believe this? Does he he want this to be known? Yeah, do you, do you get what I'm what I'm I'm sort of getting? At? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that there's what he did with JFK and then what I've heard him say in interviews. And I think that there's even some liberties that he didn't take in the film, right? Um, like, uh, for example, with, uh, I mean, the film doesn't really shine any light on like Alan Dulles as a potential like heavily, being heavily involved, does it? I mean, I mean, it does mention him and it, it mentions mention him. the fact that, you know, hey, what what was he doing on the Warren Commission report since, uh, or on he the Warren fired, Commission yeah. since Kennedy had fired him after the, the Bay of Pigs fiasco? I mean, that's that's mentioned in there, but right, it's just kind of more under the surface type thing. It's, it's sort of like the same way with, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of finger pointing to it, LBJ in, in that as well, but Stone's biggest culprit, of course, is the military-industrial complex, as he refers to it. It's, I mean, it's referred to in the movie. It's even at the start of the movie. It's in the opening, yeah, opening right. sequence. Right, you have Eisenhower saying, hey, you know, we got to be careful because we have, this is the first time in our history that we've ever had uh, a military infrastructure of this size and that we should be careful about it. But that that the biggest culprit is what is dubbed the military-industrial complex. But even that is an extremely shadowy kind of nebulous term that can mean several different things. And in this movie, it does mean a conglomerate of people. Today is probably what we refer to as the deep state, which is what you hear all the time in the media, or well, or you know, just just out there. But right. But the military-industrial complex is like the uh, the the reason that Kennedy is is killed is because of that. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean that's com a common thread theory. And you know, I've 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 heard him and in, in read in interviews uh, Stone talk about the Dulles angle more commonly. You know, like he mentions that um, more than just in passing, like like as in the film, but. But with the intelligence angle and like what you're saying, you know, you can conclude at the time, it's like a, you could make some more plausible connections. And I feel like maybe, you know, I, I've seen JFK like four times now, right? And it gets you exploring this narrative. Like it gets you asking questions. That's what it did for me anyway. And it took me like three or four times of seeing it to like really, and like reading the Garrison book uh, just reading up on some of these theories, like seeing some of these same theories in other films and like, I guess you could say what are just thesis statements about them. Like with, I'll mention with the Irishman later on, it's like they have really tight explanations for like why, you know, why the mob would have wanted to do what they did, you know? And it's like all these angles could be their own and are in many cases, I'm sure you can attest to their own books right? Um, but I, I do like how much Oliver Stone pulls from the Garrison book. I mean, like, 
I'm only about seven chapters in on that, but like, yeah, that's, that's the one. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, really, like he even says, he's like, when I, you know, when I read the Garrison book, I was really inspired by that. And I wanted to, you know, bring that in as much as possible. So like, I can see, I, I'm excited to finish the Garrison book, but I want, cause I want to see all the connections. If I'm just seeing these kinds of connections, seven chapters in, um, and, you know, based off what I've read and heard him say about it, I think it's going to continue to build on those, um, which is, you know, we talked about Garrison a lot on the on the last podcast when you were just going over your thesis. And I mean, again, these I wouldn't be interested in Jim Garrison had, you know, we not had these conversations in the past or had I not seen the Stone film. It kind of got me going to the scholarship on the topic. Right. Well, Garrison's an interesting character to begin with. I mean, uh, in Stone's film, he's made out to be almost this Frank Capra-esque character, you know, proud American, standing up for uh, honesty and all this stuff. But uh, sort of previous to the publication of Garrison's own autobiography and uh, a few other events, there was a period after the trial for maybe about 10 years where Garrison was kind of a pariah for the um, conspiracy movement, where they didn't really want anything to do with him because the trial was a major embarrassment to the conspiracy community, which up to that point had been gaining a lot of ground. I mean, they had completely flipped belief in the Warren Commission report to where people were beginning to say, uh, up to two thirds of Americans were saying, hey, we no longer believe the Warren Commission were correct that there was a conspiracy responsible, but that the Garrison trial, the Clay Shaw trial was uh, somewhat of a black eye to the, to the conspiracy community. It made them look bad in the media. And um, it wasn't until, yeah, roughly about 10 years later, did they really start to regain footing again. I think a lot of that that helps those, you have Watergate and a lot of other stuff that happens in the meantime. So people start really, maybe there's a way that this possibly happened like this. You know, Stone doesn't do that. I think one of the most interesting things about JFK is that there isn't like anything that differentiates between what is real and what is fiction, what is made up. It's all seamlessly blended together in a way that, like, it was like you were saying, Julie, earlier, that, um, you know, people don't sometimes, uh, it, it's, it's done in such a way where people don't even realize that they're watching a movie. Take, for instance, the whole opening scene to JFK, with the, narrated by, by uh, Martin Sheen, right? All these clips sort of laying the, uh, exposition for where we're leading to in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 1963. Now that whole block there, there is all the footage that is used is archival. I mean, none of it is fake, but then Stone starts weaving in these reenactment things and you can't even tell unless you're a seasoned uh, researcher or a historian, you can't tell what's real and what's fake anymore or what's been specifically made for the film. Yeah, especially the use of black and white. Um, and also Gary Oldman's a very convincing Lee Harvey Oswald. He does a really good job. Even his accent's pretty spot on. Maybe he needs a little more Louisiana Southern to it, but, you know, pretty good. Because Oswald did live in New York for a while. So, as a kid, when he was younger. Mm -hmm. 
You know, ironically, so I just had this guy on the podcast that is, um, he is a member of the civilian air patrol, hmm. right? Yeah. So, and we're actually doing a podcast episode over cap, but that, that was an interesting connection. Like I didn't really know what cap was other than just like getting exposed to it. And now like I'm friends with a guy that, uh, that is a member, right? He goes up on flights quite a bit and so going to do a, a just an episode over the history and i was like hey did you know that lee harvey oswald was in cap with david ferry and he's like we don't talk about that right but uh man that's a great point thurman uh in my audio kicked me off and then i i came back or my computer restarted and then i came back but because i missed a little bit i missed from garrison and the cia until opening montage but that is a great point you it really and he does so much like black and white throughout the film um especially in those opening montages that and i think stone is a documentarian right he's done he's done documentaries on several Mm -hmm. topics um didn't he do one on jfk am i making that up i haven't seen it uh i mean i know that there was like a supplemental documentary that came out when the film did but But maybe that's it I don't remember beyond that. Well, he's 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 talking about one he has been working on that he's going to release, right? But um, you know, and he has done he's done documentary film work, and I think that he kind of blurred the lines a little bit with JFK, especially in the beginning of the film, with like giving it sort of a documentary feel, blending it with those primary uh, clips that he's showing of Kennedy and the motorcade and Castro, and uh, yeah, that's. Definitely. Um, and Martin Sheen, always a great choice for some narration. Yeah, well, that's what I mean, is that it's, it's, it's convincing. It's, uh, it definitely adds some legitimacy to what, what, you're, what you will see or what you're going to see. You know, it's like, hey, I recognize that voice. <laughs> well, and that's a good, like I watched that sequence a couple of times and it's, it's about eight minutes long right mm-hmm. and it starts and it really the first sequence it doesn't do a lot of jumping back and forth it's the last two or three minutes that it starts right. and, then, and then it pops in with garrison um seeing the assassination on tv and then even him pulling in i mean this is the uh the shot of kennedy i mean getting capped is i mean boom 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 it shows that later on the courtroom as well but um he really and that creates i just think like a profound opening you know right well i it speaking about sort of using right actual footage or whatnot the use of uh, the abraham zapruder film in uh mm-hmm. the film is one of the probably most lasting images or takeaways from this whole thing because he used the legitimate zapruder film and uh i mean it's uh, the film of they have the actual murder of the president of the United States. Yeah. And, and, and he's, he's broadcasting it out to these, to millions of people in, in these theaters. And is, is, does that raise some ethical concerns too, to do that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it does. I mean, and Stone's even commented on like, um, I guess he, he does things that won't get him sued, but like does impact the family, the surviving family. Like he's, I've heard him comment on that. He's like, yeah, family members are still alive, but I had the creative liberty to do this, but it doesn't, you know, like what you're saying, there, there are some 
ethical implications or like uh, in the case of all like JFK platoon, like them experiencing internet an international release and becoming widely popular. Um, not just here in here in the United States, like that was a big thing on platoon is that like that experience a really wide release. And I'm sure JFK did as well. But I mean, that's, um, I mean, I think there are some some implications there. And you know, one thing like I like remarking back to what you guys were saying earlier, like I remember being a kid very vividly, like you have this idea of the presidency. And I mean, I, I must have been about the age that you guys were when you're doing your project. And then you hear for the first time, like I vividly remember hearing like, yeah, John F. Kennedy was our president and he was assassinated. And there had been other, pre you know, other presidents died in office, but it's like, that's the one that's like, you know, happened within your parents' lifetime or people that you knew, um, knew about it and remembered it vividly. And then you hear, like, I remember vividly hearing about RFK, right? We talked about on the podcast, but it's like, you know, it stood out to me that the sequence later on in JFK when RFK is assassinated, like when there's, you know, fast forward to 68 and it shows Martin Luther King Jr. and then RFK and his, how his wife reacts to that is like very much how my child mind, I was like, it's like, I didn't know who Bobby Kennedy was for, you know, or like really much about him. And like a couple of years, probably after I heard JFK was assassinated, still a little kid, probably less than 10, like a documentary or something came on TV about Sirhan Sirhan. And I was like, oh my God. And I think that Stone's kind of doing that to, to maybe bring in some like, hey, are, are there some linkages here, right? Both of these brothers were killed. And, and I just like, I mean, I found it interesting. I know that he, you know, has a continuity of bringing it all the way up to the trial, but I found it interesting that he, that he pulled that scene into the film, right? What were, what were your thoughts on that? Julie, um, you want to add anything first or you want me to just jump into it? Oh, I want to add that I think Oliver Stone as a filmmaker, like he creates films that feel extremely real. Like even going back to Platoon, which we mentioned, that's one of the first war movies I can think of that like it's just brutal. Um, and yeah, showing like what it's really like. And yeah, like we were saying, it ha like his movies have almost a documentary feel where even um, JFK having such a huge cast and being one of the reasons that the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon works, like even watching it, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's Tommy Lee Jones. But somehow like they, everything still feels extremely real and grounded in a reality that many Hollywood movies, especially Hollywood movies based off of historical events, it lacks a certain glitz that those other movies have. Right, I, yeah, I, I completely agree with that sentiment. Uh, sort of uh, going back to the intro to the movie JFK, sort of toward the the end, where right where you get to Dealey Plaza, they have, or Stone mixes in a lot of images of like home movies of the Kennedy Kennedy family, right, and it sort of establishes Kennedy. Hey, he was a person just like us, you know. He was he was just like us, and this 
is kind of linking back to what you were talking about, Brian, with like the, the MLK and the RFK thing. Even though Stone doesn't explicitly say it, and his characters kind of hint at it, I mean, it's, 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 it's not said, but it should be said that it, he's linking all these things together, saying that the same force responsible for killing Kennedy is the same person or the same people who killed uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the same people who killed RFK because they dared to dream and to want peace and to put an end to all this strife and unrest and all that. And that's why they had to die. Because, I mean, there's also a pi the, another pivotal scene in that movie that gets referenced a lot is the meeting between Garrison and X, played by Donald Sutherland, who is actually based on a real person. But in that conversation, you know, uh, X says that the greatest mobilizer for like civilization is war. And that that's what, you know, they are protecting here. Or they, by they, I mean this great conspiracy, this literal cast of thousands <laughs> that, that is active, the, the, uh, the, the government, the military, the CIA, uh, the, the, the banks, the- uh, Office of Naval uh, The contractors who are building the helicopters and the guns and all that, yeah. But right, that, that they had to, that, MLK and RFK and JFK all died because they uh, stood up against, or they wanted peace in their time, peace for all of us. And yeah, that's why they died. Yeah, I mean, I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, like, uh, isn't that Sissy Spacek that's playing uh, Costner's wife in, in, in yep. the film? Mm -hmm. She yeah. says, I believe, because um, he wakes her up right in that scene yeah. and, and i think her quote is uh they killed both of them or something like that she she, she alludes to it in some way yeah. that like the same force um would may have been responsible as you know and it's just that movie is ripe with with things like that and i think the more you get exposed to the narrative and this is like i don't think it's like i didn't feel like i was um getting too conspiratorial like i realize and i've realized more over the last few years that like people really want questions answered and that is a, a lot of the motivation behind um why things like this are done and i think probably why stone tried to lay things out as comprehensively as he as he did but also um, he, he doesn't really give you a definitive answer. It's more like, maybe you should look deeper into this that I've posed here, like that in that instance. But it's just, it's full of things like that. And really, that's what got me back interested. Uh, I mean, listening to Stone talk about the uh, interview recently, or, or the uh, Garrison book is why I wanted to um, start start listening to it. So, I mean, it's it's got me asking some of the questions to think for myself, right? So I'll see if I can, if I can find up my own answer and, and not necessarily being conspiratorial. Like Jeff Woods, like really broke this down to me and in relation to conspiracies, it's like most people through answering the question will sell the product, right? Like it, it is, people really want the answers. And, you know, I think, I don't think that, JFK's as much about Stone trying to answer things for you. I just think he really lays out all the theories, puts them all in one film, 
and leaves really leaves a lot of open-ended uh you know questions for you to to go search more into and like definitely i mean definitely eroded kind of some of my my faith in like the original because i mean i think i remember when i took dr moses like he was like well yeah there are all these theories but really all we know is this one thing that lee harvey oswald's probably the guy and like and i'm like what what you went over all that and then you just went with like the general consensus of history of and, and you know but really that's what it is but we want more you know do you think like we'll ever definitively be able to say who killed Kennedy? I I thought about that a lot because that ending court sequence with um, Garrison where he's like, maybe this will be something that Thurman's passing on to Luna. It's so, you know, it's so on like fathers will pass on to their sons and in 2036 or whenever I think it is that they, they become available, uh, sources will come available that, I mean, there were like, what, 2000 documents released uh, in the, Trump administration in relation to JFK said, and they redacted a whole bunch of that. But uh, right. yeah. yeah, um, one interesting one of the brilliant things I think about this film, even though I a lot of the theories and stuff I completely disagree with in here, or that there is some conventional explanation, or there is some explanation for it. But I think one of the most brilliant things about this film is that I feel like, in a way, it's just one giant break of the fourth wall. I feel like it is stone. He's not, it's, it's a historical drama, but he's talking directly to the audience. It's not necessarily contained within the celluloid. It goes beyond that. I mean, uh, you were talking about sort of this, uh, Brian, you were talking about how, you know, it's sort of put these theories out there and it's like, well, hey, maybe I should go check this out. I mean, it's interesting because like the meeting between Garrison and X, right? We have this whole thing laid out, this story where he's like, okay, it was the CIA thing. And, you know, I know these people who may have been involved and they should have had security here, but they didn't. And they're the only people who could have done that were these folks and all that. And, but there's a part in there where X is like, well, you know what? Do your own research. Go find out yourself. You know, you don't necessarily have to believe everything I say, but go and check it out. And that's essentially what I think Stone is encouraging people to do. It, I mean, it, maybe it is deceptive in a way, like we were talking about how he blends stuff together and it's hard to tell what's fact, what's fiction or whatever. But yes, it's it's like one giant catalyst for you to get up out of your seat and go and figure out for yourself, hey, what may have happened on November 22nd, 1963? And I was thinking about this film too. And how many other movies can you think about that had the kind of, response like this film did. And what I mean by that is that over 60,000 files were released because of this film. You had the passing of the JFK Act. You had the, found, the founding of the Assassination Records Review Board. I mean, what other film can you think about that has had this kind of impact, especially on government policy I mean, it's unheard of, especially due to the fact it's a historical drama. The only other film that I can think of in recent memory that has even any kind of context like this is An Inconvenient Truth, which came out in 04 with the whole uh, global warming, climate change thing, but that was a documentary. 
right? It's not, it's not a fiction. It's not just a drama. I mean, that's incredible if you think about that. Yeah, it's not often the government has to like take action because of a movie, except for maybe like that, here, James Franco again and the Seth Rogen like North Korea film that <laughs> was like banned because it, it bombed. Um, but yeah, to kind of go back to like previous points too, like I feel like Oliver Stone's take on this is more of, yeah, not exactly trying to say like, oh yeah, yeah, I mean, he de I feel like he definitely feels like it was a conspiracy. I think he feels like it's his job as like almost like a public defender just to create enough doubt that, you know, the, the case gets thrown out. Like there, I think at this point, you know, looking at, I know they do polls on how people feel about the JFK assassination. And yeah, if you compare it to when it happened to now, there are definitely more people that believe there was a conspiracy. And you're right that it's because of films like this, the government had to create the JFK Act, had to release documents that, you know, even though a lot was redacted, they were still released. Um, and yeah, it's not often that you see a movie have that kind of impact on, on the, not just like people, but the way that movies are looked at. Right. I. I Right, and, and Julia, I, I think you really hit nail on the head here. It's not necessarily about presenting a definitive explanation, but it's about a suggestion. It's about creating this sense of doubt. And that's always been something that's prevalent in the conspiracy literature. That has always been the, the one thing that it's not, there, there is no smoking gun. As much as, as people want to claim there is, like, uh, the single bullet theory or the Zapruder film, or there is no smoking gun in this case. But by establishing doubt, and especially with everything else that happened in the meantime, up until the release of the film over roughly 30 years since the assassination up till JFK, plenty of time for that doubt to just grow into this intense distrust, into this feeling of loss and of nostalgia. And that's why I think we see everything just come to a head here in 91 with JFK. But um, I, I do think it's fascinating that a lot of the basis, that a lot of the baseline theories that appear in JFK are ones that were prevalent from the beginning of the whole conspiracy movement after the Warren Commission report in 64, 65. Single bullet theory, yeah, the, the Zapruder film, the, the, um, the head snap in the Zapruder film, well, he was obviously shot from the front, you know, or, or the Parkland doctor saying, hey, the whole back of his head was blown out, but at the autopsy, it wasn't, yeah, these are all things that have been around, Oswald imposters, that has been around forever, uh, but, <laughs> yeah, but he, he, he's Stone is essentially rehashing these theories over and over again. And I mean, there are explanations that have been presented to them, but they're not enough. And they're not enough because of the intense amount of doubt that flourished in that meantime, due to things like Vietnam, Watergate. Uh, in the 80s, you had Iran-Contra. I mean, yeah. <laughs> is this the first like great American conspiracy or were there other conspiracy theories before this? I mean, I guess like 
Ross? I mean, I, I guess like the Manhattan Project, right? Like, yeah, well, okay. I mean, like, like, right. This is another another really interesting thing. It's sort of like social history at this point because I think I think now as Americans, we kind of view conspiracy theories as this solely American thing. Like we're the ones clued in on what's happening. The rest Whoa. of the world, nobody, man, they're not woke enough, you know, to realize what's going on. You know that that, that sort of thing. But of course, that's not true. You know, we're we're American. Americans steal everything. We we steal all kinds of concepts from people. But but Billy, you said Roswell, right? That's that's yeah. UFOs, right? You can you can say that in there because um, I mean. One, one of the, the foundations sort of for this distrust, this conspiracy thing has to do with the Second World War. Brian, you said Manhattan Project, right? Because you have this intense level of secrecy that was going on in the Second World War and it technically didn't stop after the end of the war because you had the Cold War after that. You had the Soviets deal with, you had to stop communism at this point. So there's this huge security state that's in place. So. That's why you get this growing distrust in things. And one of the things is, yes, and I mean, maybe it's not taken seriously enough, but UFOs. I mean, it sounds silly, but it's true. People kind of were like, yeah, what's going on over here with this? But I think that is part of the foundation of it. And also you can go with the Red Scare as well, that there are communists who have infiltrated into uh, our society, into our government. And, uh, but, um, that all this stuff had been festering for a while and it just explodes by the time it reaches the 60s. How about Holocaust deniers? <laughs> like when, when did that, that, I wouldn't call that a popular conspiracy theory. No. Definitely was it's a ludicrous. So. Yeah, exactly. There's, I mean, so much evidence, but when were Holocaust deniers like right after World War II or is this something that came you know even later well, i honestly don't know yeah be, I, I think it's just because that's such a uh just a uh, like it's that, that it's so ludicrous it's not yeah right like it's, it's so out there that but uh but no i mean conspiracy has been with us for a long long time and it, it, this even date, it, you can even say that in a way, the lost cause myth is its own kind of conspiracy, its own subversive movement to try to sidetrack history toward uh, uh, somebody else's aims or, or means or what, whatever. Birth of a Nation, for instance, the first conspiracy film, or at least that's what's claimed in one of my books that I have. <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, Julie, did. Did we let you know, like I was, I know I was texting Thurman about this, but uh, the, I was, I watched Avatar recently. So I Googled like highest grossing film of all time. Right. And, you know, like I was like, I knew Avatar and I think the Avengers Endgame was like right up there, like one, two. And I was like, I was wanting to see what it was, but what popped up is something different than any time I've ever searched it. Gone with the wind is the highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation. Yeah, I'm not surprised because number uh, one for inflation and it's also been released several times back into theaters to make more money. Right. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, okay, well, I, so, I do like there's a narrative on all of that, though. And I wonder how if this narrative will come over into other things like we're talking about. But like all of these, I think we've talked about this on a different episode, but these like a lot of these Disney fil uh, films are, are having like warnings like, hey, we're just getting this narrative going. Maybe we won't ever show this again someday because everything that's in here, like I've seen the messages kind of change just since I've got on Disney Plus, like these sort of warnings of, cultural appropriation or, or different things uh, that exist in these 50s films and stuff that are it's interesting I think they're kind of going going by the wayside though Disney is the one that like refuses to show Song of the South in any form which is good I mean good but then it was also still at their theme parks so it's weird to me that they give you know they're starting this but it's also like you know Song of the South is like they're racist past that they don't want anyone to see mm. or know about <laughs> yeah so let's um you, you want to hop on over and make some comments just since we were talking about aliens a second ago on this x-files episode you mean the fun part of conspiracy theories well yeah. oh, okay okay but, but before we move on there's one other thing i want to cover with jfk and you, sure. brian you mentioned the composite characters right, that, that are, are in the film. Garrison himself in this movie is a composite character. I don't know if you realize that or not. No, no, no I, I wasn't charting that. In, in what way? In what way is that many of the things that Garrison, especially in his summation at the end, in the court and all that, uh, a lot of the theories that Garrison puts out there were not ones that he had back in the 60s. They represent things that had come forward other researchers had had since that time or uh, were concurrent with what Garrison was doing that time. Guys like Mark Lane, Harold Weisberg, Josiah Thompson, even Robert Groden. Uh, th these are all uh, like researchers who contributed something and later uh, another one's David Lifton. That's where you kind of get into the whole, well, the autopsy was uh, covered up in some fashion. Lifting goes as far as the claim that the body itself was operated on in order to hide uh, yeah. uh, evidence of second shooters or shooters in front of the, the presidential limousine. But that, yeah, Garrison himself in this film is actually a composite of all these researchers up until this point. I don't know, have you seen actual footage of Garrison back from that time? No, he was a I've seen guy. photos. He was like nearly seven feet tall. Had like a real deep, like southern drawl type voice. Conan O'Brien. He's actually in the film. He plays Earl Warren. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. At that point, he was sick. I think he, he. I think he passed away like a year after the film was released. But yeah, that was. That's kind of funny, right? Stone casts Garrison as Earl Warren in the film. Yeah, because he's in it in the theatrical version when he goes and talks to Ruby in prison, you know, because yeah. Ruby's like, get me out of here right now. Tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No, I, I, did, I did not make that connection. That's awesome. Yeah, but he's he's a composite character. Uh, I mean, you know, there there are a couple of other instances of, of stuff in there. I think it's just interesting that you have so many real characters or people who actually existed in there. I mean, David Ferry was a real person, of course. Uh, Clay Shaw, of course, was a real person, you know. Now, uh, Willie O'Keefe, uh, 
Kevin Bacon. That's a composite character. Yeah. That's at least three, I think, three different characters from that saga that are kind of interwoven together. And um, uh, I mean, still kind of, of, of talking about this and maybe this is just something I picked up. I actually read an article, I think it was in the American Historical Association. They published a whole issue when JFK came out about, uh, about specifically about the film. And one of the articles in it was about sexuality in JFK. And they felt that it, the film in a way was extremely homophobic. Would you agree with that? I mean, you know, if you don't have an opinion on it, that's fine because it's I, like- I have an opinion. Like I did very much get the sense of when they were, they really got across that that was a super taboo issue at the time. Like that was more what I was taking it as. Um, because like, you know, when they were like, they accused him of uh, uh, Shaw's character of, of homosexual acts, it was like, oh, it was like an insult. I, the, way they, the way they said it, like, oh, this is gonna ruin you type of a deal. Uh, I mean, that was it. just kind of like, that's how I received it more than anything. But uh, like, what, what were kind of some of the points you, you saw with that? Well, I think, I think you raise a good point. Like when, when they interview Shaw, like, yeah, you know, it's kind of like they make this this accusation. And, and before that, you know, they're kind of hitting that stuff. And, and Shaw, in a way, is kind of like weaving around and kind of laughing it off in a way, right? But it's like the minute they accuse him of, of being gay or whatever, all of a sudden, it's like, that's completely absurd. You know, it's like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I don't Isn't know. I thought that, that would be how, like Brian was saying, like for the time, like that was looked down upon. So someone would be. Different. right not everybody but i can see someone in his position being defensive i thought you were gonna say that some of the performances were a little flamboyant and oh <laughs> but that's what i thought you were meaning but no it's it's just more in the in the because well there's a contingent of people who feel that garrison attack Shaw and guys like Ferry and that because they were gay because they, they were homosexual. Ooh, that's Felt super that, interesting. Right, that that he did. One of the ways that Garrison actually rose to prominence as district attorney was that he used to run raids on gay bars down in New Orleans. And that he would bring the press along with him for it. And that was like, a yeah, that was something that he did. And that helped put him on the map as somebody who I guess targeted you know these these groups so, of people. So would it be that like the I wouldn't say the film is homophobic, but Garrison in fact was homophobic. Well, I, it, I mean, I guess you could say that, yeah. Um, but right, what they, we're hearing here, man. <laughs> film, let's say the film portrays Garrison as being homophobic. No, I. I yeah, I mean, maybe not outwardly so, but uh, there's a quote that's floating around that or that I've read that Garrison allegedly said that he, he I think he called the Kennedy murder something like a homosexual thrill killing or something like that. Yeah. I, wow. I know. But that's what I mean is that there's there's this, these, these weird things ingrained into this film that... Yeah like peripheral that's like the same thing like how did you go down that uh 
avenue you know that's that's an interesting side sort of that provides some context for sure right yeah but i didn't know if anybody you know had heard anything about that or what i remember running across it in my reading zone there was this whole article on it it was maybe like two or three pages about how it felt like it's a bit homophobic or whatever uh like i mean did did we even have, you know, was, was it necessary to mention that uh, David Ferry once wanted to be a priest and he was defrocked because he was homosexual? Was that really necessary in there? You know, that sort of thing. Well, and too, so here's a question I'm thinking, I just pop into my head since we're talking about this, because it exists in both films, uh, Irishman and JFK, is did people really call David Ferry a fairy named Ferry? I, I I don't know. I don't <laughs> like, I, don't I mean, because that is a derogatory, right. like a slur, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I would not say that to anyone, just right. because like, I had, I know people that are gay, and I would not want to say anything to hurt their, to their feelings. Like, that's just decency. But like I did, I was like, man, that's kind of a, you know, you don't really think about it. It's something I like would hear in junior high and stuff. Uh, but then you start having empathy towards these groups and knowing people. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I wouldn't say that. Anyway. Right, right, yeah, no, completely agree. So. Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting uh, angle that um, I, I want to read more into the that the those raids myself because I, I do want to know more about um, Garrison's work as, as district attorney and then like too how he was impacted for his his investigation right like uh i mean you know it, there's the the narrative that that the government came after him to get him taken off the bench essentially right or <clears throat> taken out of office right well garrison was accused of corruption shortly i think after that and with actually connections with the mafia there was argued that he may have actually had connections to the mob but i've never seen that confirmed nor outwardly denied but i know that he was i believe he was actually brought on trial for charges of corruption at one point. yeah so yeah yeah <laughs> i think it had more to do with people in his office more so than garrison though but you know still you know he's involved in some capacity yeah i did like <laughs> how they depicted like the division in his office which i'm sure existed you know i mean imagine being you know, uh, his being his employees and like, you know, I don't know, just getting getting drugged through that whole investigation and people attacking him. And uh, it, it was an interesting dynamic. I really like it, it kind of showed a, a slow turn of enthusiasm in the beginning. And then, you know, you get a lot of division later on. Yeah, well, um, in real life, Garrison, I I don't think Garrison ever thought that this was actually going to go to trial, which is weird to, to think, you know, is that, but that once the cover was blown on his investigation, he felt it necessary to just proceed and go on. And yeah, the original suspect who he had in this case, who he was going to charge was David Ferry. But Ferry dies, so then you're left with Shaw. But just think of how different it would have been had it been Ferry as the defendant rather than Shaw. I mean, Shaw was a respected member of the New Orleans community. He ran the trademark, you know, and, it, it, and then you have David Ferry, who is, uh, 
with the painted on eyebrows, the wigs, you know, he's just a weird dude. So just think of how different that would have been. You have the Regal Shaw versus the, uh, versus Fairy, you know, who just, it's just weird. <laughs> so you think the outcome would have been different? Or like, cause the, I mean, the evidence is still gonna be the same, just different person. Well, I just think that Shaw, Shaw was definitely so much more high profile that, and it, that it would have been. It, I think it, it would have been easier to persecute somebody like like David Ferry for somebody like like Clay Shaw, just due to their their presence in the community. Uh, yeah, I just think that would have been a lot easier for for Garrison to do. Yeah, I can totally see that. Right, and this this also sort of dives back into what we were talking about, sort of with uh, Garrison and his targeting uh, homosexuals or whatever. I mean, Ferry was a known member of the New Orleans homosexual underground, and Clay Shaw. I mean, even though he he was, he was still at a level where he was able to remain hidden in a way. So it would have been a lot harder to drag him through the mud than it would have been uh, Ferry. Yeah, that is a, a little more than ironic that that both of those men, like with the homophobic angle again, that, that both that Ferry and Shaw both have those connections and that Garrison's coming after both of them. That that does provide definitely some additional context. Right. Okay, so uh, did we want to move on to the X file? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we might as well. It's just a forty-four. It's not like JFK is three and a half hours. We got here's, a forty-four minute episode. Here's the segue. You know, guys, I feel like you can't trust anybody. <laughs> trust you. I'm not trusting anyone. Molder. Trust no one. The X file. But I want to believe. <laughs> okay. Here's something I hadn't really thought of. Was it, have they ever said the X-Files was in any way inspired by Oliver Stone's JFK film? That single episode we're talking about? Just like the, I mean, the general idea of the show is not trusting the government and believing in conspiracy theories and all this crazy stuff is out there and the government's trying to cover it up. So did the film, like, because, you know, the X-Files coming out in, what, 93? Yeah, that is interesting. Right after it, like, it was there ever a connection when Chris Carter created the show? I mean, I'd, I'd imagine that, yeah, there's a connection between it. Well, what I mean is that uh, the, the Kennedy assassination remained popular. I mean, it remained a popular subject up to that, that point. I mean, even in 91, 92, we have Seinfeld parodying uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. You know, he spit on us, right? This is a Greer-style film and all that with Kramer. And uh, I know that there was an episode of Quantum Leap that was about the Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, there was I that. I forgot about that. But, I, yeah. I was going to say, too, with X-Files, even before the episode we're talking about, the musings of the cigarette smoking man, like, you had the lone gunman where characters in the show like right i i would say it's safe to say like i mean I, we may not be able to say if it was actually a lot of it was inspired by the jfk film but obviously it's inspired by the conspiracy theorist movement right well i mean what's 
I mean, uh, intriguing, of course, about the X Files episode, music, musings of a cigarette smoking man, is that it, it sort of follows the same kind of thing that JFK does, where hey, this, the cigarette smoking man is the guy responsible for all this stuff. You know, he's the the thread that weaves all these events together, or whatever. But he's a writer, you know. Is he just making this up? Is this just like? like one of his stories or whatever you know is it is it true is it not true that sort of thing but yeah sure. I thought as a kid I remember being really disappointed in the episode which now I think it's really well made but as a kid I was disappointed because there was not definitive answers and a child watching I was like oh we're really gonna get something out of this and instead yeah it is left up to question on if he's telling the truth or not oh. I think what it is, is I think it's like kind of just like a tongue in cheek kind of wink, you know, kind of like to the conspiracy mind, this, this overall huge unified conspiracy theory thing. And I think that was kind of Chris Carter's way of just saying. Yeah. And then it was taken to an even higher level in Zoolander when models <laughs> are the assassins. In the High-fiving on the grassy knoll, right? And that even had David Duchovny, like, <laughs> So. <laughs> oh man full circle wow but now, look how many levels of culture that this has penetrated though right? right like just all the mentions in the last five minutes and like i'll i'll add on to like what, what you guys are saying is like the correlation of like stones jfk and x files like the start date you know because it's interesting to me like I like, I want, and I would be down to do a series of podcasts. I just like, you know, there's the monster of the week episodes, but then there's that main plot line of which really cigarettes, the music cigarette smoking man is kind of like, uh, they even, I was reading an article about this. It's not really main canon. There's the parts of Mulder and Scully it shows in the episode are like taken from other episodes, but just like that overall concept of the, of the alien plot line, you know, that introduces so much that like it towards the ending of this episode we're talking about, it's two guys and they're like, look at all the history we've influenced. We're not even on the pages of any of the books. Like getting back into that deep state sort of conspiratorial, like, hey, this is really, it's really just these two guys. One of them smokes cigarettes all the time. Did you know that he started smoking cigarettes because of Lee Harvey Oswald? Like, you know, I mean, it's... It, the the connections that they make with that uh but that is a uh, that is an interesting like the whole plot and scope of the that line of the show being a like what Thurman's thesis is like a product of this long withstanding narrative you know yeah. that's like we have shows like that because of these events and the narratives that they spurred yeah uh, I mean, I think what's uh, um, another interesting aspect, especially of that episode, uh, uh, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, is in its depiction of the Kennedy assassination, they got the Umbrella Man out there. You know, I, yeah, pumping the umbrella up and down, you know, which, which in Stone's film, he shows up for a little bit, but he's not like a central, I mean, it's not like a central point or anything. It's just like, hey, there's this dude opening an umbrella. What's this about, you know? But this, you know, I mean, you, Pretty much figured yeah he's part of it he's like the signal man or whatever but yeah that, that's a conspiracy lore thing <laughs> and the umbrella man is an umbrella term for uh like 
participants in in this this conspiracy thing and i think that that's really funny well the the gun the gunman in the sewer is that something that's been uh, a theory that's out there elsewhere is that there was a gunman in the sewer that's yes. a pretty popular theory okay yep yeah it's actually, i would say right after like grassy knoll shooter then you're getting to someone down in in the sewers thurman you can disagree with me but <laughs> as far well, as I think if I remember correctly, I think the sewer sh shooter idea uh, starts sometime actually in either the late 60s or the early 70s with a guy named Penn Jones Jr. wrote a series of books called Forgive My Grief. But I think he was one of the first people to come up with this idea that, hey, maybe somebody was hiding down in the drain and shooting up toward the car. Uh, another, I guess, important thing to remember is that guys like Penn Jones and Jim Garrison, which is not mentioned in this film, Tim Garrison at one time had, I think, as many as 10 to 12 people firing down on the presidential limousine in Dealey Plaza, or that there were at least 10 to 12 shots fired or something along those lines. I mean, it's it's pretty ridiculous, right, when, when, when you, you, you think about that, but that the sewer idea has been something that has been around for a while, and that's kind of what I was saying with JFK overall as, as a movie, is that a lot of the points in this film are things that have just existed since critics first emerged to the Warren Commission report. And it's like, um, like with the, the single bullet theory, you know, they, that famous scene in JFK where he's got the guy set down in the chair and he's like, well, the bullet stops in midair and then it turns this direction and goes down 27 degrees or whatever. And it's like, it's, it's distorted. Uh, uh, Kennedy and Connolly were not at the same level. Connolly was like six inches inward of Kennedy. So it makes the trajectory a lot more, or more probable that way. But of course, it's misleading in the film. You don't see that. Yeah, man, Connolly got maimed. Yeah. I, I was I was reading, I didn't realize that he got as tore up as he did. And, and that it's, would seem like miraculous that he survived. That he survived. Like I mean, he was he had entry and exit holes. Like his wrist was shattered. Came out his ribs on one side. Like I was like, oh man, like it, it, he really. I mean, he got shot up. Yeah, he lost something like three, th blasted out like three inches of his ribs or something like that. And then yeah, shattered his wrist and I guess uh, deposited in his thigh. Or whatever one of the points that conspiracy theorists often make that he's not hit at a specific point is that he's holding on to a, a stetson hat or whatever that's visible in a few frames as a pruder film <laughs> now that's in the film that's i mean or that's actually in in the movie uh garrett's uh costner's garrison points it out you know as he's doing summation he's like he's still holding on to the hat here which would have been impossible if his wrist had been shattered by a shot at this point you know and so Kind of, kind of intriguing. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so this X-Files episode, it brings in also makes a point to bring in the Martin Luther King assassination as well, yeah. right? And it's like, hey, same people are behind, maybe the same guy are behind both of these. But it's this in relation to some of our past um, conversations about how well, yeah, a lot of people in the South think they're still fighting the Civil War, so we're going to get some, a cracker, Patsy. It's going to be great. Like, the, he says that, and I was just like, oh, uh, you know, just, but that, you know, that, 
that was interesting to me is dialogue that made it in the script in 95 or whenever this season was out, maybe 97. I was season four. I can't remember uh, what year the episode was, but you know, just like that, that that's something that's still being discussed uh, on a, on a larger narrative. Right. And meanwhile, people in the South are still saying heritage, not hate, but that's neither here nor there. I guess we should point out too, with the X-Files, like, Brian, you talked about it a little bit, but the character Cigarette Smoking Man was like this, I mean, almost mythical presence on the show starting out. He was a background actor who happened to be leaning against the file cabinet in a scene of just like government officials and was smoking a cigarette. They liked the way he looked, so they brought him back and he became like this person behind everything that Mulder and Scully were trying to uncover but then in this episode, we find out that it, you know, goes back even further. And he's been behind basically a, almost every government conspiracy ever made, basically. When his dad was a Russian spy that was electrocuted in a Louisiana electric chair. They also say in the beginning. Yeah, it's <laughs> wild, man. Yeah, but, you know, when th- like when Thurman and I were talking about this like a year ago, like this, this was something culturally that stood out to me. I was like, I want to say I brought it up a year ago. And then when we were talking about doing this episode again, I was like, let's not forget the X-Files. Yeah. So. And the, the way Thurman described it is it's, I mean, the episode's kind of tongue in cheek with, and it's, it's actually a fun episode. It has, I mean, it's somewhat serious, but for the most part, it's pretty fun. But, and I remember when it came out, it was a big deal because we were finally going to get the backstory of this guy. And then, like, so I was disappointed that, you know, they, they didn't say who, <laughs> like, there were no real answers, but like most conspiracy theories, there's never any definitive answer or there's always explanations. Yeah, I, I, think, I think another uh, interesting or another key point that I, I would like to bring up is that a lot of ways, JFK assassination is kind of like the gateway conspiracy theory. Or like all everything else to open up beyond that. It's the door that opens in and suddenly everything becomes possible if you are like, hey, yeah, they killed Kennedy. What else did they do? You know, that sort of thing. And I, I feel like that that X-Files episode plays off of that. And, and that's why that's kind of that lead in there, right? Yeah, he killed Kennedy. What else did he do? And you buy it after that. Aliens. Yes, <laughs> Like, um, it don't matter, you know, for anyone into true crime, it's like always that when they, you know, figure out who a a serial killer was, it's like, well, maybe it was the, he was the Zodiac killer too. And I'm like, there, no, (laughs) like stop trying to connect too many things together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do like the fact how they do just make it like one guy though. It's like the threat. I think that's hilarious when it's like Oliver Stone thing. It's like, you have like I said, his military industrial complex, which is like just the arms of an incredible octopus. There are like so many different faucets to it. It's kind of like his own uh, twisted version of like murder on the Orient Express. Everybody's guilty, you know, in some capacity or whatever. But the X-Files kind of subverts that. It's like, yeah, it's that one dude. He's the glue. He's the thing that ties everything together. He's the point, you know. That's so interesting, too, because, you know, conspiracy theorists don't want to accept that Kennedy could have been killed by one person, by Lee Harvey Oswald. 
And yet I feel like the X-Files kind of married, you know, both concepts of it being a bigger organization, but also just being this one guy, but not the one guy that you thought it was. Who's, don't they call the other the other guy with cigarette smoking man like they flip the the coin to see who's gonna murder the alien but they i was just like i watch subtitles every time i watch a show essentially but then isn't that they, they say that character's deep throat yep, yeah. that's deep throat yeah mm. or at least i think that's what i mean that's the name that i, I yeah I, it would have had to yeah yeah it would because I, I just saw deep throat at the bottom like one time yeah. Right, which of course is the like the Watergate reference or whatever, but you know, I mean, that's that's great. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a it's an extremely extremely well made episode, so just just really good. It, you this know, is, it, go ahead, Julie. I was gonna say this is what we grew up on. Like we were kids watching the X Files and watching all these JFK documentaries. We were like, I mean, little underage conspiracy theorists <laughs> like when we say a conspiracy theory is like bunk and it's stupid like we're real experts on this we've been there <laughs> but you've, so we've, you've, we've, we've, you've been preparing for this podcast like your whole life i dig it <laughs> and now like i feel like you know we live in a, a day and age now that conspiracy theories are just wild because of all the social media and ability to get across information that has you know no basis in any sort of evidence or common sense so now it's like I mean you get absolutely wild conspiracy theories which I know like JFK there were some wild stuff like that the driver shot him and you know it was Jackie like but at least that like there wasn't a widespread of that as of now where you get, you know, people sharing things on Facebook and parlor exists now. So it's going to get even crazier. <laughs> right. I, I think that that's, that's a, that's a real interesting element you point out there, Julie, is that, yeah, you don't need evidence anymore at this point because the conspiracy is just accepted. It's accepted to exist. It's accepted that there's this, shadowy deep state that is pulling the strings controlling everything in our lives and that in a way there's almost nothing we can do about it but the key the key to getting away from that is the truth you know but but that, that we we've reached the point where yeah we don't need empirical evidence we don't need reason or logic we know it's there it exists and i mean that's dangerous of course i mean you know you you need you need to have evidence and i mean I, like you're talking about social media and all of course the 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 rampant conspiracy theories about the deep state have been really intense over like the past four or five years or whatever right now we're into the so-called voter fraud stuff which you know i mean if you think about the logistics on that i mean that's just incredible to imagine that all these people would be working together in order to disenfranchise uh uh, our our system of democracy or voting or whatever like that. But then again, it's like you look at the Kennedy assassination and sort of uh, what uh, Stone puts out here. And in a way, it's kind of similar, right? Where you have to have possibly hundreds of people working together in order to make this thing pull off so seamlessly, which of course is impossible. There's no way. <laughs> Have you guys got your um, George Soros check from that Black Lives Matter rally that we marched in? <laughs> I'm still waiting. 
<laughs> I'm still waiting for mine as well. Yeah. Oh man. Cryptocurrency. That's what I'm waiting on. Yeah. Oh gosh, you know, talking about that rally we went to, like, you know, this is small. I I guess it's connected to a bigger conspiracy theory thing. But I the rumors that Clarksville they had sold out all the hotel rooms before the event and that they were busing in Antifa and I'm like and this was spreading all over Facebook and I'm like there's absolutely no evidence for this and you know people called the hotels and they said they were like 50% full and that was like a normal (laughs) so yeah even you know it's connected to a larger conspiracy theory about Antifa and their connection to Black Lives Matter and but still like on a community level and a, with a population of what, a little over 10,000, like this is crazy. Yeah, no, that, well, those same rumors are swirling. I was just happy that, you know, when, I, when the George Floyd thing happened, I went to one here in Russellville and it was, the Clarksville one was very tame, very tame in comparison. Like I, I was super nervous being down there. There were ARs out everywhere, these, militia type groups out everywhere it was it was not cool but it, it was the same thing bus loads of protesters there's this being bust in from little rock and they're gonna tear up the shopping center where jc Penney's is at and we gotta protect that property we gotta take care of jc Penney's, even though they're going bankrupt we gotta <laughs> make sure the clothes are there yeah so um Sort of getting back, Julie, to what, what you were kind of talking about and, and what we were saying about how conspiracy theories are kind of accepted and, you know, you don't really even question them. You just, you hear it and you're kind of like that. I think we should pivot toward the Irishman now. Yeah, for because sure. Because I think one an important element of the Kennedy assassination sort of overall narrative, the mafia has always been there. It's always been kind of like, well, they may have been involved in some capacity. I think what's interesting about the Irishman is that it's, I mean, it's not really pivotal to the story in any way. It's just like a minor peripheral thing that's going on. But in, in the way it's presented, it's almost accepted as just fact that like, hey, the mafia, yeah, they were totally involved with running guns with the CIA. And uh, they're probably the guys who helped Cap Kennedy, you know, that kind of thing like that. And it, it, I mean, there's no exposition really into exactly I mean there's not just a lot of specifics it's kind of like shifting glances like we know who's responsible for that you know that kind of thing do you think it's because like the Kennedy assassination is so infamous at this point the explanation is not even really needed like people know that part of the conspiracy theory is that there is a mafia involvement so you can, once again, it's just kind of an aside and this, you know, st- the Irishman is, has a bigger story. So there's no need right. to like really do a whole side plot about it and just kind of reference it. Right. And I also think what's um, sort of interesting too is that in a way this mafia plot outline is, is brought out in a scene in JFK. Uh, it's when one of uh, uh, Garrison's investigators is sort of questioning everything, right? And he's like, well, maybe it was the mob and, you know, uh, Trafficante had one, one Kennedy dead for this reason and Marcello and all these other guys like that. 
and you know he kind of outlines this whole mafia scenario that they're the ones because they wanted the the casinos back in cuba and all that mm -hmm. and garrison's just like come on man you got to think bigger than that they may have had some involvement but it had to be all these other people working together but in the irishman it's kind of like well the cia may have been involved in some capacity but it was mostly the mob you know that sort of thing <laughs> yeah no they <laughs> Well, I mean, they start off with that. It's like Joe Kennedy, uh, mob got his son elected, and now they, they did that. So it's a long-term plan. They can get casinos back in Havana. I mean, it, it really is like, this is the angle. And, oh, man, like that movie, I, ha I added the book to my Audible. I haven't dug deep into it yet. Um, it's, it's, the movie's based off of a book called I Heard You Paint Houses. Right. Um, which I really do. I mean, just kind of peripheral. I want to check it out, right? Uh, about Frank Sheeran. And and it goes into, I mean, these are the, the Buffalino uh, crime family. Like I've been, I've seen Irishman, I think three times now. It's super, I mean, it, it and JFK are very long. Like, I mean, it's like seven hours yeah. worth of, we keep picking long movies yeah. to watch. <laughs> Well, okay, like, like the, I think this is one of the most incredible things about JFK the movie as well, is the fact that the film is three hours long, it's rated R, and yet it was able to make over $200 million at the box office all the way back in 1991. I mean, that's incredible. And it's a historical drama. You don't see people lining up, you know, to see like, like movies like that. It's not an action film necessarily. I mean, that's incredible right yeah stone stone made some comments on that like how how big of a deal he thought it was to get costner casted as garrison i mean the cast in general both these films right i think the irishman like i remember the first uh film they were marketing that i can't remember the name of it but uh that uh de niro and al pacino were acting on screen together at the same time whatever film that was, they were selling that as the point of like, this is the first they've been in the same movie, but they've never been on screen at the same time. Not Irishman, it was like, was it like 10, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think they have like one scene together in Heat. Uh. <laughs> but but just like the cast, Pesci. But, um, Pesci came out of retirement for this. Oh yeah, uh, who, well, uh, Anna Paquin from X-Men. Like, I mean, the whole cast, Harvey Keitel is, is amazing, right? Both, both movies, the cast alone will bring in an audience and, well, and then you can in, tell the story. And in, in, in a way, I think that like with, with films like, yeah, like JFK, I think that that adds legitimacy to it. If you see these people you know, in these roles, you automatically identify them. You, oh, they're a great, you know, good actor. It's like, um, like, like there's, there's a JFK, there's, there's a scene where uh, Garrison's on a plane, he's with Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau, yeah. Right. You know, and Matthew, I was like, you know, hey, there's no way that that kid could have done those shots from that bookstore. You know, those, that dog don't hunt, you know, you remember that, right? That sticks with you. And I think that helps. Or when Pesci, he has that whole paranoid breakdown and he's like, who killed Kennedy? Who did the president? You know, the shooters don't even know, right? You remember that. That yeah. sticks with you. I think yeah. like, you know, any anytime a movie has some sort of controversy involved as well, like that often leads to box off increases. And in JFK's case, like we were talking about, you're getting the government involved in it. Um, you're having stuff like it shows the Supruder film. You get to see a guy actually get killed. <laughs> like, yeah. 
people are weird. They will go and see stuff like that just because of the controversy and they want to be a part of the overall conversation around the movie. Right. Um, I think I, I brought this up both times that, that we've talked about the Irish from the, in the past. I texted you about it the other day, Thurman, but <clears throat> how many people do you think will get some of the tie-ins that maybe have even seen both films? Like if I wasn't watching JFK kind of like back to back with this, but like the fairy named fairy and like Pesci being in both films, like I, I felt, I mean, I would like to see what Scorsese says about that, but I felt like that was Scorsese's way of kind of like tying the two films yeah. together. Well, I mean, the fact that you also have Joe Pesci in the film too, you know, I mean, he was playing David Ferry and JFK. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember, what was the name of the CIA guy? E. Howard Hunt. That's right, E. Howard Hunt, right? The, Who is involved all in the lore of the, the CIA connection. I couldn't, I couldn't remember if it was supposed to be Richard Helms or David Atlee Phillips or who it was. But, you know, there's these whole round table of just these, these CIA operatives who were, who were supposed to have been involved in the CIA assassination. And, you know, I'm thinking about this whole big nebulous theory thing, how, you know, it's supposed to be like military, CIA, LBJ. Uh, hey, there's even that, that point at the beginning of the, of the film. Uh, and I know I keep going back to JFK, but that's because I think it's a great film. I think it's, it's one of the most important films of the 20th century. But where, where talk about the CIA setting up like dummy corporations or whatever, protecting their corporate interests. And there's a big like Pepsi Cola logo thing that appears on there. You know who was vice president of Pepsi Cola in 1963 when Kennedy was assassinated? Richard Nixon. Wow. Ooh, how about that, right? But but it, like like you have all these different people who are allegedly involved in this, and it makes me think of that meme where you know you have all those people. Aren't they like cutting a cake or whatever? And they all got their hands hands in the middle, and there's that one guy off to the end who doesn't have his hand in it, and that dude's Oswald. Oh. <laughs> I don't think I've seen this meme. Yeah, you haven't seen I, that. I know it's just smart like for me. Like all these people, they have their hands like in the middle on top of each other, but there's like one dude standing off to the side who's acting like he's part of it, but he's not. Yeah, and that's Oswald left out in the cold, you know, to be to be left as the fall guy. That's it. Everybody else is, you know, in the safe zone, but he's not. <laughs> yeah. No, they and they really like in that X file episode. They really played that up, that angle that like. He didn't. He wasn't doing anything. That I mean, he was just kind of just a total fall guy. Didn't pull the right. trigger. Right. I mean, you know, there there isn't any mention of him in the Irishman, right? All you get is just Ferry, who's running guns uh, to Cuba for the exiles or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, right in in JFK, Oswald is uh, Garrison turns him into a patriot. He does so in on the trail of the assassins as well. He makes it like, well, okay, maybe he was like a double, double agent that, you know, he was pretending to be this communist, but he was trying to infiltrate these groups and he happened upon this plot, but he was trying to notify the FBI in some fashion that, hey, Kennedy's life was going to be threatened in Dallas. But in a way, he, he, it, it shows like how far Oswald as a character over this overarching assassination narrative has come since like 63, where he's just this deplorable little communist, right? Who just decides to kill Kennedy. But by the point in 1993, he's a patriot. He was undercover. He was trying to stop this whole thing. And he just fell into the trap. 
like they had set him up the whole time like like they'd been preparing him almost his whole life for this this to take the fall to be this tragic character and i think that that's that's interesting you know you don't, you don't see that <laughs> do you know hearing you say that it's so interesting to me to think you were saying before like how almost impossible it is to have all these like pieces to fall into place all these people involved in this assassination but at the same time it's also so crazy to think that one guy was able to pull this off this like you're saying just this angry dude who decided to take a gun to his work and shoot from the sixth floor and was able to to do it and it's like how can you know these are the two i guess you say most popular theories of what happened and feel equally crazy and like obviously there must have been some luck involved for both of this to for either one to be the the true course of events right and i think that brings up an interesting philosophical question to this whole thing too and this has to do with in a way conspiracy theories offer some form of order like there is some meaning there's some semblance behind everything everything connects in some fashion and it, there there's some overarching narrative everything everything is connected in somehow but then right you have chance you have coincidence which is chaos and which one is scarier the larger overarching conspiracy which involves this great deep state military industrial complex thing are just the unpredictability of of history which one is worse which one is the the scarier option here yeah well, and then too, like, uh, you know, I think that in a way, both both films, JFK and the Irishman beg this, uh, is like, you know, is, the or, is, is organized crime allowed to exist because it's controlled by the deep state, right? Like, I felt like that question was kind of begged uh, in, in different ways of like, yes, you have this organized crime, but they're being run by intelligence. Like they are part, and in a sense, you know uh what not everybody in every crime family but in a sense they are a part of the intelligence community See, right? like like with with jfk yeah i felt like in a way uh the the mob or kind of like the heavies are they're being treated like like almost like mercenary types or whatever by central intelligence agency or intel whatever group you want to call it right because they, they talk about, well, maybe the mafia brought in some assassins or something like that. However, in the Irishman, I feel it's more like, you know, the mob is completely autonomous of this. They're only like involved in some capacity with it, but they don't need the CIA. They don't really need that. They're just kind of there. Well, you know, they're ancillary to everything. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that that was was kind of it's it's kind of flipped in a way. It's yeah. like, well, yeah. you know, the CIA are helping us with the Cuba situation, but you know, that's it. That's all we really need them for. That's it. Other than that, it's it's like it's in JFK. The mafia are almost just like thug types. They're not like um, main players in this this whole thing. Yeah, you know another thing that stood out to me, just like about the Irishman in general, is like not only do they they go through the, the you know, hey, we have the answer to the Kennedy assassination. It, it, we got that on tap for you, but also we got the guy that killed Jimmy Hoffa, 
yeah. right? That like both movies try and tie those two things together. Like we're talking about X-Files tries to tie, uh, or JFK's maybe uh, alluding to with that scene uh, with his wife, uh, JFK and RFK. Maybe those are the same people. X-Files, well, maybe JFK and Martin Luther King Jr., maybe those were connected. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, another great mystery with the, with the Hoffa uh, killing or disappearance um they they you know they answer that too and and too again our our craving for answers like we in that sells people want that people really want to know what happened to hoffa who knows that he, who he is you know and i think that um anytime you have a film whether it's <clears throat> historical drama or autobiographical fiction or or whatever i think when you get people trying to answer these historical questions in film it's always going to draw people in, you know? Right. Well, um, there's a quote from JFK by X. Something He says something along the lines of that people are suckers for the truth. That's what he says. But I think what's interesting is that we pretty much have a different version of the truth that comes out every five to 10 years or so. It just keeps constantly shifting and changing. Uh, a lot of the names remain the same, but the scenarios slightly shift but it's just a series of interpretations. There is nothing definitive. There's nothing set in stone. No, that's not a pun. I just. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, you know, both these films, I feel like they, they try to answer historical questions and they provide historical context. Like, I mean, that's like, you know, you go down these rabbit holes and there's, there's context there. You read into it and, and it lends to your overall speculation perhaps, but uh, a lot of it too are theories and I, I think that that's the the most valuable thing like I I used to be much more conspiratorial until I started looking at things in that way and let me ask you this term like be, being an expert on this topic which I think like both the people sitting here with you would agree like definitively you are um, how do you how do you deal with this on a personal level of basically not getting too far down the rabbit hole or or staying you know unbiased in a sense of you know i i don't get the sense of talking to you ever that you're like this is the answer i answered this question you know you you have a very scholarly approach to this topic whether we're talking about films or scholarship but how do you kind of approach what i'm what we're saying like the satiation of like yeah people want answers i know you have to want answers too especially as involved as you are with this topic. Right. Well, I think that, well, I mean, yeah, this topic is very personal. I mean, it's been there my entire life, really. And, you know, I'll say what I learned initially, you know, is that I was a conspiracy theorist. I'm not so much anymore. I'm open to the idea that maybe possibly there, because there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of mysterious things out there. And I think a lot of that is highlighted in these films or in these TV shows, you know, I mean, that there, there are a, a lot of legitimate questions, but I just tried to, it's, it's like that quote about, you know, be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brain falls out type thing. Uh, I think one thing that really helped me with the whole Kennedy assassination thing was actually going to Dealey Plaza and walking around down there, because it is very small. I mean, it's only like an area of about an acre. And you realize, okay, well, Oswald really didn't have that far to shoot. Okay, I know like in the film, they say he had six seconds to fire or whatever. Actually, it was more like seven or eight seconds that he had. 
but that I just try to keep in my brain logic, reason. I don't try to get emotionally overwhelmed by things because it is an emotionally overwhelming topic. It really is. If you think about it, especially, I mean, guys like, like Garrison, they instilled this whole narrative, this whole conspiracy narrative with this Kennedy nostalgia thing, this anti-war sentiment, right? That Kennedy died so that all these thousands of people could die in Vietnam. And right, you think in the in the 60s, right? How many of those those people were directly affected by that? And beyond that, at that point, right? Uh, I mean, who who had had people people die like in Vietnam? But I just try to to remain. I mean, I, I say in a way, remain unbiased. I mean, I just there are some things I I feel like I know. There are some things I feel like I don't know. But there's a lot of things that are murky, a lot of things that are really hard to prove here. And um, yeah, I just try to try to to use my brain instead of my heart on this. That's what I try to do, you know, and. uh, But yeah, it's a very charged topic. There's a lot of different uh, emotional connections or whatnot. And I mean, right. And that leads to me both personally too, because uh, I mean, I was raised on this stuff. So, you know, it, it has that connection to it. And I don't think there are many people who can, you know, say that they have fond memories of looking at, at photos of, the, uh, you know, from Dealey Plaza with their dad, you know, and pointing <laughs> out stuff. You know, I don't think there are many people who can, who can say that or, you know, coming over on Thanksgiving every year to watch The Men Who Killed Kennedy uh, television series together. I don't think there are many people who can claim can claim that. But I mean, it is a personal topic. But at the end of the day, it's just what can you prove? What can you not prove? With the Kennedy assassination, there is no smoking gun. There is nothing that indicates that there was a conspiracy outright. And that's what I'm left with because everything is pretty ambiguous or there's some explanation for it or it can be interpreted in a different way and maybe that's what the the whole bottom line to this is is that there is no absolute truth to this it's sort of like julie you were saying hey will we ever know you know everything that that happened and no i don't think we will and i mean that's a problem that we all face as historians we're all just throwing our own interpretations at the, the the wall and seeing what sticks you know <laughs> that's that's pretty much um pretty much it but uh i mean i don't know how y'all feel about this overall y'all if, if you believe in a conspiracy or not but what i'm saying is i don't judge you if you do believe it or if you don't believe it because it is what you make it it, it, it it's so subjective at this point mm-hmm. that i think Pure objectivity in terms of figuring out what happened, I think is almost impossible. Now, people like Oliver Stone and other conspiracy theorists would say that that was intentional and that that was meant to be that way, that it was meant to look. So, you know, we always question, we'll never know for sure. But I just think that that's just how history works. That's how life works. And it's like I was saying with order versus chaos. And maybe in this case, like I said, keeping an open mind, there's the possibility it may have been both working here. Maybe 
I don't know, maybe Oswald was an intelligence agent, you know? <laughs> I mean, probably not, but... <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> but you never know. That's what I mean, is that it's pretty much you... You make your own version of events based off of what you believe, off of your own subjective feelings, off of your own experiences. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's a great point. And like, that's what I've tried to do with this is like to work from a critical point of view of, of like, yeah, this is a movie. You know, I think I talked with with you uh, recently, Thurman, about like uh, the film The Patriot. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a there's a character in there, uh, Tavington, who's based on a real guy. Like they had the same uniform, uh, but the real guy's name is Tarleton or Tarleton. And you know, it's like even reading it, the the names are very similar. And you know, like with films, it's a little bit easier, to, I think, to um, think critically. But then, you know, like with uh, you start bringing in the scholarship. Well, let's, let's get the Garrison book in here. Let's see about this. Uh, I, I heard you paint houses, but and it's it's easy to start, you know, reading online, looking at articles and reading what this person had to say to lose that. Um, like, OK, I need to I need to think critically here. I need to question everything they're saying. I don't just need to accept. It just, you know, that's been my best approach. And I think just probably, I don't think you have to have training as a historian to think that way at all. I think, I think that, I think that that's just something you develop over time. I know tons of people that think critically that are not historians and they would approach this topic the same way. Well, and I I think it's also like Julie mentioned earlier about uh, things like social media and there, there's just so much information out there now. There's so much you can get your hands on. And a lot of that you can't vet, you can't uh, fact check, you can't, or or if it is, it it, it can prove to be problematic, but that there are just so many different ideas. There are so many different voices out there at this point that, you know, there there is going to be no, no singular version of events that's going to be accepted that that's not going to happen and uh, i mean you can you can view that as a as a, a downfall of technology or a benefit i mean you know it, it works both ways with, i mean i feel like with conspiracy theories and obviously like we've been talking for a while and kind of breaking down with jfk you know what the conspiracy theories are and the overarching like how do you know how does this show like us as a society and and how we function as individuals and wanting to connect things and blah 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 um but not everyone and that's the one like the danger of conspiracy theories comes in not everyone is going to do the amount of research or the amount of critical thinking that we take when we approach these theories and that's when you get people you know driving to a pizza place in dc and shooting up the basement trying to find like who they think it's traffic kids in there like that's pizza gate and all taken was like a little bit of critical thinking of like there's no way the democrats are sacrificing children to retain their eternal youth like that's when it gets dangerous and to me like the social media is just sharing things with absolutely no context or no critical thought put into it at all yeah. Okay. So let me elaborate just to kind of tie in uh, a conspiracy like that you're uh, a peripheral conspiracy. 
Have either of you guys read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Yes. Right? I, I mean, I already, I already know where you're going with this. Yeah. I mean, does so, that, Adrenochrine, does that even exist anywhere else other than that book? That's the first thing I heard about it until you got into the, yeah, the weird conspiracy pizza gate, uh, body harvesting in China stuff. Yeah. You get, yeah, into that. That's right. That was the first time I, I, remember hearing about adrenochrome or whatever yeah adrenochrome yeah right it well you know now it's this mainstream thing it's propagated by all sorts of fringe conspiracies as there's alex jones and others um but it's like i i kind of think based off my initial research that might be the origin and everything might have spurned from that and that might be total fiction you know i mean yeah but it's like how much of that goes on, right? And if I wouldn't have, if I wouldn't have read that book, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made that connection. You know, it's like such an obscure. I mean, I maybe would have online just researching about well, it, but it seems to be the point of origin. Okay, well, I mean, like, like this, this has. I mean, uh, to use a JFK assassination-related example, Julie mentioned earlier that there's the theory that the driver shot JFK, right? That the limousine driver, an agent named William Greer, turned around with a pistol. Uh, you know, JFK at Zapruder frame 313. Now, the way that that began was because there were bootleg copies of the Zapruder film that were circulating in the late 60s, which is because of Garrison, because Garrison subpoenaed the film, and while it was in his possession, he made bootleg copies of the film, which he then distributed out to researchers who were allied with his way of thinking, and being like, hey, show these at college campuses, you know, we, we got to keep this conspiracy-minded thing going. But these versions of the Zapruder film that they bootlegged were so many generations removed from the original that it was almost like watching virtual mud. So without that clarity, of course, you're going to be using it as almost like a Rorschach test where you see what you want. Oh, yeah, it looks like the driver turns around and shoots him in this one. But it was only because of the quality of the film was so, uh, so degraded due to the process of that. But I mean, if you watch like a first generation copy of it, no, I mean, it's obvious that he doesn't, right? That's so funny to me too, because like the easiest way to disprove it would be like, why, you know, why didn't call Connolly or somebody notice that the driver turned around? Why didn't they- Somebody's like shooting over the top of you, yeah. You know, I don't yeah, know. wouldn't you notice the gunshot coming from right behind? It's because that driver was only one of 11 other shooters, guys. Connolly was in on it, too. He, I mean, yeah, he's from Texas. Him and LBJ, he they got together. He took, one, he took one for the team. There is a theory that Oswald was actually shooting at John Connolly and that JFK just happened to be in the way. I don't know if you've all, have you all heard that before? I haven't heard that one, no. Because uh, Oswald, or like Conley, I guess, was, uh, I forgot what he was in uh, the Marines or whatever. And he's the one who ordered the discharge for Oswald whenever he defected. Oh, to yeah. and, and that he was burned up about that. So that so is an odd connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a theory, of course. There's not much basis, but yeah, that's one out there. But. Yeah, pretty much anybody in Dealey Plaza could have been a shooter, I guess, or whatever, <laughs> you know. The Umbrella Man, right? Firing the poison dart or whatever at the at the president. That's one of the wildest ones out there. Yeah. But uh, what what can you give um 
Any context to the guy standing over by the overpass that also got hit with the bullet? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, because that's that's mentioned in JFK the movie, and that's pivotal to the Warren Commission report. That was a guy named James Tagg, who was a bystander. He was standing by the triple underpass, uh, who gets nicked in the face by shrapnel from a curb or something like that, which uh, they later trace. They find a spot on the curb where it looks like maybe a bullet may have nicked it or something like that. But it completely messes with the timeline of the shooting, meaning that you would have had to have one shot hit Kennedy from the back, exit his throat. You would have had another shoot Conley. Then you have this other missed shot, right, which hits the curb. And then you have the fourth shot, which hits the president in the back of the head. And there's no way that could have been possible because Oswald would have only been able to fire three shots in the allotted amount of time, which according to the Warren Commission was only about six seconds. So you have a fourth shot that you have to account for, right? And also in studying the Zapruder film, the Warren Commission felt that there wasn't enough time in between when Kennedy reacts to the gunshot and when Conley reacts to being shot. Meaning you see uh, in the Zapruder film, you see the car emerge from behind the Stimmons freeway sign when it's hidden from Zapruder. Kennedy's hands go immediately up to his neck, right? Mm -hmm. You can tell he's been hit by that point. Now, Conley doesn't seem to be showing any distress. He starts to turn around, and at that point, that's when he's hit, or it appears he's hit. His cheeks puff out, his hair becomes disheveled, and he starts to collapse in his seat. It looks like he's yelling at that point. I think he yells something like, my God, they're going to kill us all, or something like yeah. that. Right. But um, the reason, I mean, the Zapruder film and James Tagg, the third wounded man, uh, makes it essential to explain or, or to concoct or create the single bullet theory, where you have three shots instead of um, four. Meaning that the Warren Commission believed that either the first or the last shot was the miss. Oswald takes aim, fires. Maybe he misses the car. It hits the curb. A piece of the curb breaks off and hits James Tag in the face, right? And then Oswald takes a second shot, and that shot passes through Kennedy's back, through his throat, and into John Conley, right, at that point. And then you have the third shot, which is the one that takes Kennedy's head off, which kills him, right, at that point. And... Um, but that's what facilitated, James Tagg is what facilitated uh, the, the reason why the single bullet theory became such a necessity. And I mean, it is essentially the linchpin to the Warren Commission report, because if you don't have the single bullet theory, then you have to admit that there was another shooter, that there was a fourth shot, and there's no way that Oswald could have shot that many times in that six second interval that the Warren Commission claimed. But like I said today, estimates are more, uh, and this was by like the House Select Committee on Investigations in the late 70s. They said that, right, that Oswald probably had more like seven or eight seconds to shoot at this point. Not to say he got off a fourth shot, but that does allow more time for him to aim at, at the car. And um, there's also the debate that what struck the curb was not an actual bullet, but a fragment, maybe possibly from a headshot, because 
the bullet that hit Kennedy in the head completely disintegrated. Uh, there, uh, in the car limousine itself, there is there was damage to the chrome plating above the windshield, and there was a crack in the windshield from where shrapnel hit. They recovered pieces of both the nails, the nose, and the tail section of a uh, 6.5 uh, millimeter round, but it's possible that that fragment or, or that a fragment from that headshot might have hit the curb and that's what chipped the curb and then hit Tag in the face, but that's possible. What, what is it about one of the uh, bullets ending up on that, that basically it didn't splinter upon impact. It was like a, it was lightly damaged. It didn't really look like it. And a lot of people point to that as like a conspiracy, like, Hey, this bullet right. here was a plant. Do, right. can, this you, is, can you say anything about that? Right. Which, which that's alluded to, right. And I mean, it's mentioned in, um, in JFK, there's even a scene where you have Jack Ruby dropping off the, uh, putting the, the bullet on the stretcher and just, you know, kind of walking away like you know, nobody saw me or whatever. But uh, that is what became infamously known as the magic bullet, which ties in with the single bullet theory. It's also known as Commission Exhibit 399. And uh, I mean, in the movie, right, they show it, this tiny little pristine, they call it the pristine bullet. Yeah, That's what it is. Even though it's not pristine, it's flattened out and there, there's lead missing out of it. So it had been fired. It's not like somebody just took a pair of pliers and removed it from its casing. But um, that... This pristine round caused this much damage in two grown men. It caused something like seven different wounds in two grown men. And that's what the, you know, the debate is, is like, how did this bullet remain intact, end up in Conley's thigh, and then just fall out at some point? Now, I mean, there's speculation about that. Oswald was using a, a Italian-made Manlicher Carcano rifle. Uh, which uh, famously you'll see conspiracy theorists uh, deride all the time, you know, say it's a terrible weapon. You know, if you were going to pick something to shoot somebody with, you wouldn't use that. But it was a surplus World War II weapon, which at that point would have been 20 years old. I think it was either a 43 or a 44 model. But um, he was also using ammunition that was also at least 20 years old. So it's possible that there may have been a misfire some of the witnesses in Dealey Plaza report that they thought the first shot that they heard sounded like a firecracker. One of the uh, theories that's put out there is that it's possible that when Oswald fired the rifle, it may have hit the, um, the tree slightly, which would have slowed down the bullet considerably, or once it impacted Kennedy, the bullet slowed down considerably. And once it exited Kennedy's throat, the bullets started tumbling, which further slows it down and then impacts um, Conley. But that the speed of the bullet had been remarkably reduced. And that's why it remained in the condition that it did. Now, if you buy that or not, you know, I mean, that's up to you. I, I mean, there has been studies conducted. I mean, I know um, like in the film, Right, you have Costner as Garrison, right? He's holding up C99 and he's like, well, let's take a look at these other uh, rounds that were fired by the Edgewood Arsenal, the guys who tested the rifle and the ammunition for uh, the FBI and for the Warren Commission. And, you know, he's like, this one was fired into the wrist of a human cadaver and it's all deformed and, and blown up, you know? 
But that's because, I mean, that's a direct shot, like where they're aiming and shooting directly at it. When if you have a number of factors, like I said, it could have been the age of the rifle, the age of the ammunition, it could have hit a tree. When it impacted the bodies, it may have been significantly slowed upon exit. And that's what leads to the, uh, the, the bullet not being completely uh, annihilated or maimed in some fashion. Now, I'm not a ballistics expert, so, you know, don't, you know, don't, I, I'm, you know, I, I can't, I can't say definitively, like, that's what happened, but, you know, I mean, it is a theory, and it, it does offer an explanation, but it, it just depends on how, I mean, like, like, what do you feel about it, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things, uh, like, you you provide a lot of good content, so I wanted to ask you some questions today. Oh, no, and like, because like, there's certain things. It's like I would just rather hear somebody who's you put in the work, man. Like, and it's is evident. And even it, even as a trained historian, it's it. I don't know. It's it's still hard to wade through some of this, man. I just think uh, part of it is like, I've gotten really interested in it over the last year, particularly since we've been talking about, since your thesis defense, but it, you know, you put in that extra work and like, I've asked, you know, I've talked to you about places to go look and sources to pan through. And, um, and it's, it's easy to get lost in some of these, uh, questions though, for sure. Right. Right. But like, like things like, like, yeah, the magic bullet, Commission Exhibit 399 like that. You understand why people do doubt it because it does seem pretty incredible, but incredible things do happen. So, you know, it, it just depends on what, what you have evidence for. What, that's my, that's the JFK is so weird to me because every explanation is so complicated. Like, you know, most like, take, I don't know, the moon landing or something. It's like, was there this elaborate, like they brought in Stanley Kubrick to film it or you know the simple like they filmed when they got to the moon like JFK it's like yeah you have to walk through like from point A to point Z for all of this to make sense for any theory there is not one simple explanation of oh it was just this guy Oswald and he was angry and so he killed him. yeah like you know Thurman you just talked for like seven minutes trying to explain how this one shot could have like the bullet would have remained pristine so i mean to me that's why jfk is the conspiracy this will always be like the if you're making a list of top conspiracy theories it has to be jfk because there is no like definitive answer we i think we'll be talking about this you know we may get technology advancing to better look at the zapruder film but otherwise, I think we're going to be talking the same stuff for the next 20, 30 years. Well, right. And I mean, that's what I was saying with like JFK and even what we're talking about now. These are these same points that have been rehashed since the beginning. Single bullet theory, the Pruder film, grassy knoll assassins. Love you know, are there people in, can you see a shooter <laughs> in the pictures? You know, that sort of thing. Is that a muzzle flash? You know, uh, was Oswald an intelligence agent? Was there Oswald doubles? You know, that's a, this has been stuff that has been just circulating for the past nearly six decades. And yes, it's going to continue to do such. And I think, yeah, it is 
it's interesting. It's a great point. Yes, that even the official explanation for stuff is overly complicated. The conspiracy theories are complicated. The official theories are complicated. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, it's it's an overload is what it is. I'm going to laugh if somehow they solve this like next year. <laughs> oh, man, that would be wild. Like, well, you know, I mean, okay, so let's uh, on the Irishman, Frank Sheeran, you know, apparently confesses to in his right before his death to killing Hoffa. And it's like, what if, you know, but are we going to, is there, or the, you know, there's all uh, several things like that with the Zodiac killer. Um, yeah. You know, are we going to, is it going to be something like that that moves the narrative forward? And I, I, undoubtedly, I think the narrative will probably move forward. That may shroud things in even more complexities and doubts um, when it does. But um, it's, you know, I'm interesting to, interested to see uh, what the future holds for this topic for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in the in the either yeah, I think it was late nineties. There was a guy who claimed he was a grassy you know, assassin, a guy named James Files. I don't know if you've heard of that name before, but he was supposed to have mafia potential CIA connection or something like that. Wasn't he like the failsafe? Like if Oswald missed, he was the kill shot. Right, that's like the theory or whatever is kind of they latched onto Oswald and that yeah he was kind of the failsafe. If Oswald missed, which in this case he did, then Files would finish the job and he's the one who allegedly shot Kennedy. I think his story's not true, but you know. Was was he, did he receive the umbrella signal? <laughs> Oh, that's man. so weird man. <laughs> i know like i haven't said like i, I that, that was just stood out to me from that uh x-files episode i was like yeah oh, didn't remember that part anyway. <laughs> well um we want to we have anything else we want to say uh sort of wrapping it up uh plan uh what do we want to do a future episode on also well i mean we're gonna i guess do uh, glory in 12 years of slave for a lost cause sort of thing uh, yeah. we're going going back to our original conspiracy theory the lost cause definitely, definitely actually that might be interesting to develop right the lost cause is a conspiracy theory because it does it does subvert history it, or, or it creates its own its own kind of alternate history which of you know i mean yeah i just i just think that that's really really interesting i think one of the things that I mean, we probably, I, maybe we, we touched on, yeah, we, I think we touched on in the podcast that we, the initial one that we had, Brian, was the idea of Kennedy as peacemaker instead of as cold warrior, which JFK, the film, really makes out Kennedy to be this, uh, this force of peace. He's going to end Vietnam. He's going to end the Cold War, that sort of thing. And they mentioned some documents in their national security document 263 which is supposed mm -hmm. to pull out uh, uh, troops from Vietnam or whatever and then after Kennedy's died then there's 273 that gets issued which is like now nah, we're doing that we're going full in on Vietnam and uh, there's a there's a book called uh, Rethinking Camelot by uh, Noam Chomsky that pretty much uh, grenades that whole theory and it proves that Kennedy was a committed cold warrior and that he wasn't going to end the conflict in Vietnam or anything like that. But in Stone's JFK, 
uh, JFK is this uh, this uh, this peacemaker that you know he's going to bring peace about in the '60s, and of course, the military-industrial complex doesn't want that. But I mean, that's yeah. That, well, I mean, Stone is big on that uh, on that. In, in well, for example, because I listened to that uh, interview he did on Joe Rogan. Yeah. Um, cause it, he does like that interview does break up nicely. He talks about Vietnam platoon for like 40 minutes and he talks about JFK for like 40 minutes and then talks about uh, the Snowden and uh, some other things, which that film has, he, have either of you seen S Snowden? No. no, it's on Netflix. I just saw and Joseph Gordon Levitt plays okay. Snowden. Um, but I haven't seen it either. I've been charting it. It's, it's a few years old. Uh, like five or six years old or something like that maybe even not not even that old but i'm i'm gonna check it out soon i've been i've been really just enjoying you know i never really got super interested in oliver stone's films uh like i mean yeah just like the main ones but now like i'm really been interested in chasing down seeing you know what more his work's about yeah well um you know uh in the academic community, and I ran across this a lot, a lot of people portray Stone as being this, like I said, this kind of disingenuous propagandist, that JFK especially is a work of propaganda. And I think it does dangerously flirt with those tendencies. But I do think that Stone is an incredibly, exceptionally talented filmmaker. And I think that he is a very passionate person. And I think he, he very much believes in what he puts, that, that he's, attempting to work towards something greater or some some greater truth. Now, I know kind of what I'm saying is that, or what I've said in this is that, well, there is no great truth. Instead, we're just gonna be left with a uh, uh, plethora of interpretations that you know, aren't gonna have any singularity. But you know that uh, Stone gets a lot of flack from, I mean, he did when the film was released, he did from critics. Uh, and like I said, the academic community, but that I do think that he's exceptionally talented. And like I said, I think JFK is one of the most important films of the 20th century. And um, that, I mean, the public has spoken. I mean, these films are popular. There's, we're talking about them today, you know, 30 years later. We're, and, and that they are films as activism and that the films themselves have ingrained themselves into the narrative, into the legend. JFK is synonymous with the JFK assassination, with the theories, with the prevalence of the theories. It's part of that story. And I think that that's, that's incredible. I think that's really incredible. And it shows the power of, of film. It shows the power of telling history through film. Our, our drama or our, our, our making that more palatable to audiences. And uh, yeah, I just, I just think that's really incredible. And that's why I felt like having this discussion over this film really fits in perfect with this history through film series that we're doing. Because For sure. like For I said, sure. the film, and I mean, even the Irishman is now part of that. It, it you know it adds to that narrative but uh are the and the x-files right but they're all connected and i think that that's interesting that you have the media so uh, so integral to the uh to the 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 overall conscious 
popular narrative. I think that that's really cool. Yeah, Seinfeld, all of it. I mean, there's yeah. it's really it's really infiltrated into all uh, so many aspects of American culture. Like we've we brought up a ton. I know we were just like the main three things we we're talking about, but there's there's a ton of stuff that's come up. And I do know uh, just from one of those recent interviews. Stone is supposed to have a new JFK documentary coming out that's yeah. supposed to move things um, even more forward than he did in the film. Yeah. So I'm, I'll be interested to see that and chat about it. Uh, when, yeah. Just, you guys when it comes right. out. Yeah, I just just think that that's I I, I think that that's incredible that like a historical event is now it's so ingrained in popular culture like. I mean, there are a few historical events that I can think that have made that crossover like this that are so ingrained into our idea of, of popular culture. I think that that's, that, and, and it's the conspiracy narrative that's ingrained. It's not so much the Oswald did it thing. It's like the minute somebody said, hey, Oswald, you know, he acted alone. It's like, you know, you know, we're... <laughs> For real. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, Joe Rogan, he said, he was like, I can tell a lot about you as a person by how you view this conspiracy. Like he was basically saying, like, if you say it's a long gunman, it's a magic bullet. Not like, he's like, I don't even respect you. Like, he's like, right. I've gone way yeah. too deep into this to buy like the surface level narrative. Uh, but, you know, it is like, I mean, you have so many history buffs, so many conspiracy theorists that Man, I, I just hats off to you for really putting in the academic time on sifting through all that. Like, <laughs> he spent his whole life doing this. <laughs> How well, many books like have been published on this? Over two thousand. Yeah, it's one of the most written, if not the most written about event in American history. I mean, and that's pretty incredible. Like singular event. I mean, that yeah, that's I mean that's pretty incredible. And uh, I know you're starting your whole uh, essay series or whatever on life and travel. And I actually plan to write an essay about uh, uh, JFK and Oliver Stone's use of the Zapruder film in that. So I'll oh, nice. probably have that done in the next few weeks or so. So you cool, can put that back. Cool. And man, I'm wanting to do like, I did do some write ups, just like peripheral stuff on like, just like a review of the Irishman, a review of JFK that. It kind of overviews some of the things we talked about today, but not really going into them. But then I can, it'll be good to link the podcast. Or I was like talking with you about linking uh, your thesis, you know, to, to you know, this great place to tie other pieces of content together with some, some text. And I'm looking forward to it. Right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, guys, um, thanks for always collaborating coming on it's always awesome talking with both of you and i uh, really enjoy these these podcasts so thanks <laughs> thank you brian thank you enjoy. Right. bye guys bye Have a good night you too